0: Welcome to The Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings
1: about food. Join host, Ali Houston, as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself
0: with The Canteen Podcast.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of The Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Please don't forget to leave a five star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks and enjoy the show. Alright, and we're recording and I'm lucky enough to have with me today... Michael J. Koss, who's the chief executive officer and chairman of the board of Koss Corporation, which is a Milwaukee-based consumer electronics company founded in 1953 by Michael's father, John C. Koss. Um, Michael's also an advocate of eating a a low-carbohydrate diet for health. Welcome. Well, thanks, Alec. It's nice to be here. I appreciate you coming on. Um, And... uh, we kind of connected on Twitter uh, where I saw that you were interested in the kind of world of health. But uh, the the kind of history of, of your company is that in 1958, your father effectively invented personal headphones through his model SP3. Um, when did it dawn on you that that's what he'd done, and the, <laughs> cultural, the cultural impact of that. Well,
0: I was I was one of the first people to wear the headphones. I have pictures of my sister and I as children, uh, where he brought the original prototypes home. It, w- it was kind of a funny story because my father had started a hospital television rental company in 1953. At that time, there were no television sets in hospital rooms, so the patients had no no access to TVs. So he came up with an idea to buy broken television sets and fix them and then start renting them to hospital patients. Mm. That's how the business started. But he was a musician. He played the trumpet. And he loved music. And in 58, the uh, stereo cartridge was just coming in. So stereo were becoming popular. And back then you kind of put your own hi-fi system together. If you remember ever seeing a, a big chest in your Grandparents' living room, where all the hi fi stuff was, most of that originally back in the 50s was cobbled together by hobbyists. So he went to the parts store and he bought a turntable. He wanted to make a portable player you could haul around in the house to listen to your favorite music without disturbing anyone. And uh, because his parents were always telling him to turn down that crazy Stan Kenton music, and uh, he wanted to make it a private listener. So he went along to the parts store and got a pair of crystal wave headsets that you would use for listening to the wireless. And he put them on, he plugged them in, and they sounded terrible. It was like listening to a telephone. Hmm. Well, fortunately, he had these three-inch speakers that he'd been using to repair the hospital television sets. And he and his partner uh, were talking about it in the lab because he couldn't, the lab was a garage, talking about it in the garage where they did the repairs. And dad said, you know, he couldn't get any oomph out of these headphones. They just didn't work right. And so his partner said, well, let's try these speakers. So they drilled holes in the magnets of these speakers, fished a clothes hanger through, tore the chamois pads off of a flight helmet, put some cardboard on the back, plugged it in, played the music. Dad said it was like being in the band. Mm -hmm. It was just fantastic. That was the first stereo headphone for just listening to music. That was what it was designed for. And so they took it to a hi-fi show. And everybody they showed it to said, where do we get these? These are fantastic. And he said, no, you don't understand. It comes as a system. You buy the the phonograph with the headphone. And they said, no, you don't understand. We have a phonograph. We just want the headphones. (laughs) (laughs) So fortunately for for me and my my three sisters and my brother, my father uh, decided to set the phonograph player to the side and get into the headphone business. And that was how the company got started.
1: Yeah, that's cool. It's uh, it's always interesting to hear when a real innovation happened.
0: It was pretty exciting. I mean, he if you look back on it, and that's back when they were paper cone speakers. And then eventually, probably within four or five years, he was looking at using microphone transducers and headphones and wiring them in reverse because it's basically the same principle, the way that they operate. And uh, then he wound up designing a, really a blowout proof version of that Mylar type of diaphragm with a, or Mylar type of element with a Mylar diaphragm, (coughs) excuse me, and a one inch voice coil. And uh, that became sort of the standard of the industry. That's when you think about, close your eyes and think about an archetype for a headphone, that would have been the Pro 4A and Pro 4 AA that he created back then in the uh, early
1: 60s. And I guess uh, taking some kind of old uh, TV speakers and turning them in the way uh, and draping them over your head is something that other people probably copied quite quickly. In, yes. In essence. Right. So how did, how did he get the jump on the market and sort of um, get a foothold, given that people with more or companies with more money could have just... Uh, stormed in and, um, and stoned a thunder.
0: Well, at the time the industry was just getting started and it was led primarily by companies in the United States. Um, if, if you think back to that time, uh, you had companies like Fisher, um, uh, Scott, um, you had, um, back then uh, Sydney Harmon had Harmon Carden, which became, you know, the whole JBL empire and Harman Kardon empire, but these were all dom- U.S. domestically based companies. Now the same was going on over in Europe. You had a lot of it coming from Germany with Telefunken and people like that doing the same thing. Um, but um, the the driving force of it was still in the states. So there wasn't somebody that's was just going to ride in and try to take it over. But what did happen very quickly? His his headphones were selling for twenty four ninety five, which was a lot of money in nineteen fifty eight when you think about it. Um, he immediately had copies come into the country from Japan. And back then, in the late 50s, early 60s, the quality coming out of Japan was notoriously poor. And these were exact copies of his unit that would sell for $14.95. They were $10 below his retail. And they were exact copies. And the reason we know they were exact, because when you took them apart and looked inside, they always had the same serial number. My father didn't have a very sophisticated assembly line. They would actually carve with a soldering iron a serial number into the inside of the ear cup. So they always had the same serial number on the copies coming in because they just made a plaster cast of one of the cost ear cups in order to do it. These came in and the risk was then that this $14.95 headphone was gonna put the company out of business. So what dad did, which was very ingenious and changed the whole company, was instead of making a $14.95 headphone to compete, he came out with a $50 headphone. And that was that Pro 4A and Pro 4AA which started, which had a much better performance, and eventually became a blowout-proof standard of the industry for people in the recording and business. So you go into radio stations or any place that were doing any kind of console mixing, you'd have to have a a phone like
1: that to use. So
0: that was a really big difference that differentiated the company from everybody else. And that's what put us on the map.
1: Interesting. So where he he could have engaged in a race to the bottom, um, uh, chiseling away his margins, he went the other way and the gamble paid off.
0: It did indeed. And that established the company. That's cool. But the other problem they had, Ali, which is kind of interesting, is if you create a headphone, what are you going to plug it into? There are no headphone jacks. (laughs) There's no place to plug the things in. So he kept trying to get some of the major consumer electronics manufacturers to put headphone jacks in their devices. So it was a pretty funny story. I went to a hi-fi show and he just happened to talk to Sidney Harmon. And Sidney was, of, of, the, of the larger companies at the time, he was kind of a, uh, the, the smallest. And he said he'd consider it, but he, he would just think about it. But then he also had an opportunity to talk to Herman Scott. Now, Herman Scott and Avery Fisher had a bitter rivalry, and there were always stories that they had spies in each other's plants and everything else, but he, he talked to Herman Scott and he talked, and, and Herman Scott said, now, you know, I would have to retool everything. It costs a lot of money. I understand this privacy thing, but it would cost us a fortune. And he said, uh, okay, um, but he had talked to, to uh, already talked to Sid Harmon about it, and there was some consideration going on. And then he happened to get in a cab on the way to the hi-fi show. He happened to share a cab with Avery Fisher. And he told Avery Fisher the same story, gave him the pitch. And he said, well, I talked to Herman Scott and he's considering it. Well, the next year, there were headphone jacks on everything. They didn't want to be beat out. And eventually it became an IHF standard, Institute of High Fidelity standard, to put those jacks on so they could be used at all times. You didn't have to turn your music off at night.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing to think back to a time when that didn't exist, I suppose. I suppose um, that's one of the things for for your generation that's maybe like uh, mobile or cell phones for for millennials. Where, right? You know, I'm 35, and so I was about 14 or something when people started to get mobile phones. And but I've you know employed people who have never lived without a smartphone. Right. Um, and I I'm the same with headphone jacks. I think. Well, what did, what, did, what did you do when you wanted to listen to music or something uh, in private? I guess you, you just turned the volume down. <laughs>
0: exactly. It didn't work so well. Uh, you, A, you couldn't enjoy the music, and B, you were still bothering somebody else in the house. So privacy was really key. The other thing was people weren't used to hearing music on headphones. They didn't know what it was. So when you went to the first hi-fi show, people would put them on. And they'd immediately start shouting to each other, wow, these are fantastic. You got to hear these. So everybody down the hall in, the, in this hotel show would hear this, and they'd come in to see what was going on. But there, and there's some, there's some footage on our website uh, where it gives a kind of the history of the headphone. And it's actually a clip from my birthday party when I was a kid of some of my friends trying the headphones on. And that was what was going on is they're shouting and screaming at each other because they're trying to talk to each other and they can't hear each other over the headphones. But we take that all for granted now. I mean, everybody's so used to wearing headphones, they don't think about it. So if you're wearing headphones, listening to something, you're not going to yell at the guy next to you. You're going to, you know how to lower your voice.
1: Yeah, but it does take some thinking about it. Yes, it does. If if you're not thinking about it, then you can, you can fall back into the trap. (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny. I suppose that happens whenever we, do something to our bodies that it's not evolved to to deal with,
0: right? Well, it's like wearing specs. Yeah, same thing. Although hearing—it's funny, though—you bring that up because that's that is funny. We learned this because we funded a long time ago the Cost Auditory Center for Research and Treatment here at the Medical College, and that's where people go to get cochlear implants and things. We I learned an awful lot from those guys about hearing aids because. You know, there was, we were always told that older people didn't want to wear hearing aids because they were too vain. They were worried that people would see them and they'd be considered old, so they didn't want to, to use them. That didn't, that actually was not the case. The problem with hearing aids is if they're fitted too long into the process of having hearing impairment, relearning how to hear again with a hearing aid is very hard. That one of the audiologists compared it to spending time in a jungle and walking through the jungle every day and beating down a path to the waterhole and coming back every day. The minute you stop doing it, the jungle closes in behind you. And so fighting your way through that path again is very difficult to do. So the longer people go without the benefit of having some sort of hearing device to help them, the longer those synapses get closed off essentially, or the longer the system, the processing system uh, takes to rebuild. So when people get hearing aids, they immediately react to the fact that it's very loud and it's kind of shocking to them, but it's also because they're relearning how to reprocess along the lines that have been abandoned for a while. So it takes a while to adjust to things like a hearing aid, um, if you've gone a long time without, being, without being, uh, having any kind of support, any hearing support.
1: Wow yeah i mean you hear a lot about uh the brain's plasticity right into old age and how you you prune the bits that you don't need and right. i guess it could be overwhelming in a good and bad way if suddenly you've got one of your major senses back um and i've heard that too that a lot of it was down to vanity but that's interesting that it's that it can be overwhelming for people well, at the time we started this back
0: in the um early 80s when we started or yeah the mid 80s when we started working with them the average um the average life of a hearing aid right after it was being had it been prescribed was two weeks so people use them for two weeks they go into the desk drawer and in, unless you had the support there and the continuous you know emphasis to do it that was what was happening is so people get them, they get them prescribed to say, I'm not going to put up with this. It's too loud. It's too hard for me to do. There's a real, it, it takes a long time for people to, to get in that habit. And the other problem with it is, you know, it's, it, it is closely associated with other forms of dementia and Alzheimer's is the hearing loss and they run in parallel. And so it becomes even harder if you have that going on at the same time, because your mind's not going to make the cognitive adjustment. It's just going to, it's going to keep taking them out.
1: Mm, interesting yeah and i suppose as well asking people you know what it is exactly that's affecting them uh getting their feedback is much more difficult when there's a mixture of problems
0: right exactly
1: uh you started your career in advertising and marketing and yes. i wanted to ask you about that because you know i love mad men and tv show and I wanted to know, like when you started, um, what it was like at that time. I know you spent some time in London as well around, around then. And uh, what was it like? Did you see our product in Mad Men? Uh, no. We
0: were in it. We were really? featured. I don't, I don't remember that one. That was one, hilarious. Was the whole thing? thing. We were in about uh, four episodes. Really? We, we became a client. Cos became a client in Mad Men. It was really funny the way this happened. Uh, I heard about it. I read an article that uh, it was written in a local newspaper about a guy that had seen the opening, uh, the, the brand new premiere scene for the coming year.
1: Yeah.
0: And the guy was complaining about the fact that it had taken him totally out of the show because there were three things that happened in the show that made him think about that he was watching a TV show. The first was it had something to do with the Green Bay Packers and the Super Bowl, which is a you know a local sports team in Wisconsin. The second was that cost headphones were were one of the new clients, and the third was a reference to Beloit College because one of the uh, account execs I guess, had gone to Beloit College, and there was some comment running comment about Beloit College, which is a Wisconsin small liberal arts college. Well, this got my attention because I went to Beloit College. I worked in the advertising business, and the fact that the phones were on and they were making a commercial with the phones, I started thinking, "Wait a minute! <laughs> I hope that I, I don't know what's going on." So I, I I got a hold of a friend of mine that's in California and asked if he knew anybody at Lionsgate, so we could at least find out how we were going to be represented in this uh, in in this episode because we had no idea what was going on. And and if you remember, there there was a a kind of a sad situation where a company was was poorly represented with jaguar where one of the executives insisted on having a relationship with with one of the women working in the firm yes. it made it made the firm look it made jaguar look you know bad from that standpoint so the immediate worry is oh, oh, oh yeah. does this does one of the writers know me i mean what what's <laughs> happening i was in advertising and 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 so we got a hold of them they invited us out to come to the set right away, I happened to be traveling at the time, so I sent my son Michael, who is our in in marketing and product development here. He went out he spent the day on the set the The guy that was running the show and his name escapes me right now is a who was a terrific guy with Michael, and he met him and not uh, Weiner. Time... yes, it was exactly correct. And uh, so they spent some time together and explained that they really wanted the authenticity of the brand in there and that they'd put it in and it was an authentic client. And in the in the story on the show, Peggy has to rescue a commercial that's not quite working out for the client and it's all about using headphones. And uh, so it was great. It worked out really well. So it was, it was, that was funny. So, but, but to get to your question about what was it like when I was working in the ad business, I was I did work in the advertising business uh, in the in the um, 70s, and th- this took place in the 60s. But yeah. I can tell you there was a, there, there were a lot of awful uh, there were a lot of uh, similarities. There were a lot of similarities between what was going on in the in the ad game back then, and you know the difference with the creative side and the account side, and yeah, it was it was quite a quite a business.
1: And uh, you spent a bit of time in in Europe, didn't you? In, uh, yes. in Ireland and in um, London. Yes, I started in the UK office.
0: We had uh, we had offices in Slough, and I lived in Windsor, and I enjoyed that a lot. I, I had an opportunity to take the all the marketing support things that we were doing in the U.S. and then adapt adapt them for use throughout Europe and and the Mideast East and Africa. And uh, that worked out really well. And then we, we consolidated that office into our manufacturing facility. At the time, we had manufacturing in Italy and in Ireland. And we consolidated everything into the Irish facility. And uh, we had subsidiary companies for sales in France, Germany. And uh, we had one in Holland for a while. Uh, we had another one in Japan for a while. Um, so that, that worked out well. I, I enjoyed that. It was, a, it was a good experience for me.
1: I, uh, I, while, while you were talking earlier, I looked up, oops, sorry. I looked up the, um, the modern, uh, value of $50 in 1958. And it would be anywhere apparently between $340 and $2,000 depending on how you calculate it. So right. the relative value might be $450 or something. So I suppose the, the initial product was with 2499. You said, yes, would be a few hundred dollars. Right. So it's it really the high end of things. It Was a high end accessory. That's right. Well, my dad always said, you know, do you want to sell, you know, um, ten Skodas or one Mercedes? That's always the the question for people.
0: Exactly, exactly. Well, my father had a pretty good idea.
1: <laughs> I, I I remember when you talked about Peggy and Mad Men and the headphones. I remember her. Working on that account now, but I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that it was cost. Yeah, um, that's so funny. That's what yeah. a thrill. And they did a lot of work. I
0: mean, they 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 props to them. They went out. I mean, the prop department found the actual models that were popular at that time, and they put them in. There's another section. There's another shot of Pete wearing the headphones one night, listening to music all on his own quietly. And then there's another sequence where they're they're talking about bringing a computer system in to look at how they're going to analyze the spending for the cost account. And so it was nice being, I mean, it was a great period piece and it's exactly, it's right. It's authentic. We were, we were really cutting the edge and we're doing a lot of advertising to try to build that business back then. So it was kind of nice. We were never on the Super Bowl though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I guess it was probably as expensive back then as it is now. It was a lot of money. That's right. What, how much is it per minute now it's, it's insane isn't it
0: the last time i looked it was north of a million dollars but i can't yeah. i have i yeah depending on how you buy the package i don't don't hold me to that i don't <laughs> they make all kinds of deals nowadays who knows how, what they wind up getting
1: so what got you thinking about um about the whole diet world well, uh, the diet
0: world—that's—I've uh, had—I had problems off and on from the time I was younger, from the time I was about thirteen, um, where I wasn't the right shape or size. I mean, I was wearing um, my—I was big. I was always a bit big for my age, but but then I started to put a lot of weight on things didn't fit right. I was winding up wearing hand-me-down clothes from, from friends of my parents, my father's, and which uh, kind of interesting. Um, but so I've gone through off and on diets as a kid. You know everything from I my the pediatrician prescribed diet pills when I was a kid, which you know was miserable. And uh, I was on the Stillman water diet at one time. And uh, there have been a whole number of different diets and programs that I was put on, sometimes under supervision of physicians, sometimes not. So I've had some personal experience that way. But what really kind of got me into the low carb and the keto area is uh i was at uh, a meeting of the broad i was an advisor for the one of the uh, parts of the broad foundation eli Broad had set up a fund to study uh to try to cure inflammatory bowel disease and uh it, we had some uh, members of the family that had, had inflammatory bowel disease and i'd gotten involved with the crohn's and colitis foundation and I was very interested in, in making a contribution there as much as I could to try to help uh, cure those diseases. But I, I wound up on the on the Broad Advisory. And the last meeting that we had of the Broad Advisory before it got uh, be, really came under the whole umbrella of CCFA was that, or the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. Uh, there were three different papers that were being presented on diet and dysbiosis. And at the same time, there were two or three papers that were presented on vitamin D and studies they were doing on vitamin D. And I thought, wait a minute, we know dysbiosis is an integral part of, of inflammatory bowel disease because it's a dysregulated immune system response to normally, occur, a normally occurring gut bacteria in a genetically susceptible host. We, okay, that's the working concept of how that disease operates. So if you, if you, can, if you can dysregulate the gut, by changing what you're feeding the individual, that, that got my attention. That was kind of interesting to me. So I started doing some more reading about um, sugar. And because it looked like carbohydrates were one of the things that were driving an increase in the bad bacteria, so to speak. You know, you have the, the Bacteroides and Firmicutes, which are the two major. I'm really sorry. That's my father's grandfather's clock that's still in my office. Don't worry about that. <laughs> It goes off at noon. Um, I didn't want to talk through that. But you have the firmicutes and the bacteroides. And what can happen is that you can dry, you can get the levels so that they're not right. And what that does is it triggers an inflammatory cascade. When the immune system tries to combat things, it this, it really causes a lot of collateral damage to self. It's not an attack of self. It's not like an, an autoimmune disorder. It's an immune-mediated disorder. The immune system's overacting, but it's destroying uh, normal tissue beca- or human tissue by accident, essentially. And uh, so. When you have that situation and it's being caused, it can be driven by diet. I thought that that was really fascinating to me. And so I started poking around and doing some reading. And the more I was reading about sugar and more I was reading about carbohydrates, I kind of got steered into this whole area was going on with, with, um, with diabetes. And the fact that a profound number of people in the United States are either diabetic or pre-diabetic and which has some real concerns about other things not just you know loss of vision loss of hearing um, loss of renal function but uh, heart disease heart attacks dementia alzheimer's so it all seemed to be coming back to the same basic thing and i thought you know this is making an awful lot of sense to me. Everything I was reading about this, it was just making way too much sense. The, the whole concept that there was uh, a, not an essential carbohydrate, you didn't need carbohydrates. Gluconeogenesis, you can create all the glucose you need and you can run on ketones. So why why have why have all this processed food and all this carbohydrate-laden diets? And so I just started reading and everybody from Gary Taubes and Nina um you know, uh, 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 let's see, uh, Robert Lustig. I mean, you know, you know the books that are out there. Ivor Cummins' work uh, with uh, with Jeff Gerber, and and so I, the more I'm reading about this, I'm thinking, wow, this explains a lot about why I had trouble because I'd go on roller coaster diets myself, and then I'd lose the weight and I'd put it back on, and then some. I'd lose the weight, I'd put it back on, and then some. So my metabolism was clearly being Manipulated by these high-carb diets, and I was a vegan for a while. I thought that was going to be a solution. I was a vegan for about nine years, and that made me very large. I got really big during that period. So it, none of none of it made any sense until I took a, a, a real interest in this whole uh, low-carb or ketogenic type of lifestyle, which I've done now. It's coming up on; it'll be three years in December. So and I haven't looked back. My only, the only thing I've ever gone off off the rails on is is nuts, which I, I'm learning are really not as not as not as healthy as I thought they were. They've got a lot of fat in them, but they also have some carbs in them, so that's not not a good thing. But other than that, you know, I haven't haven't strayed, and I haven't had any desire to stray. So it's been a a, a real change for me.
1: Mm, that's a really interesting story, and in the. Uh the fact that you struggled from when you were really young um, makes it kind of extra interesting. I think there's a lot of people who maybe are a bit down on uh, low carbohydrate diets because they themselves have never had a problem controlling their weight. Um, But I'm the same as you, maybe not quite as extreme, but uh, my weight would fluctuate and I would really have to, try when it came to restricting calories and be very conscious about it and walk around, uh, feeling half starved all the time. Um, and of course that works, but then you can't outwit your hunger, you know, you have to eat. And so you, you do you put it back on and then because you were effectively starving yourself for so long, your body insists that, you know, through the mechanism of hunger that you put on a bit more, because it doesn't want to starve again. Um,
0: what? Um, I had the price exactly the same experience. The other thing I did, uh, I never was a, a gym rat. Um, I I did. Uh, I I had a trainer. Uh, this was about ten years ago, or yeah, a little long, about eleven years ago. I had a trainer uh locked up for about three years and I was working with a trainer five days a week because I was afraid at the time I'd never really done a lot of exercise independently weightlifting everything else so I had a and and, and I was at the age where starting something like that could be dangerous because I was out of shape so I had a, a I, I hired a trainer and I, we were on a fairly restricted diet but it was a it was a locale diet okay? And there were carbohydrates that were allowed. And I was carb loading after working out, doing all the typical weightlifter type, you know, activities and the weightlifter type post-workout and pre-workout loading and amino loading and all that other stuff. And yeah, it worked. I got really, I got really lean. But you know what? I, every, every day I was trying to figure out how I could get a pizza for hmm. how I could figure out when was my cheat meal here yet, and I wouldn't have cheat meals I'd have cheat days, okay, hmm. and it was it it's terrible compared to now, ever since I started this within six weeks, there were no cravings anymore. I didn't crave anything anymore um It took me a little while to figure out this whole idea about some of the um Sugar substitutes being a problem, so I got rid of all that. That took me about a year before I figured that out. The thing that really uh, got my attention with that was when I read Doctor Kraft's book. Um, He uh, is—he was a remarkable guy in coming up with the whole idea of an insulin assay. I think if anything has gotten my attention more, this is the single most important takeaway that I've had from this whole experience: is the fact that we focus too much on glucose and not enough on insulin. And I think insulin is a real master hormone in this whole this whole mechanism. And there are too many things that trigger insulin and high spikes in insulin. And there are too many of us that are hyperinsulinemic. I think I probably was. I, there's no way for me to test it now because it's been so long since I've been eating that way. I'd probably never really understand it. But when you look at the general population, he was all the tests he was doing it was looking like there's a predominance toward hyperinsulinemia and it could very well have been a survival gene that was that we inherited that was passed on because it allowed you to take things like fruit and pack it in as fat really really quickly by having high responses of insulin that persisted for extended periods of time i mean some of these some of these test subjects that he had they fell into uh, I think there are four different groups or profiles in his in, in studies. Uh, some of the some of the insulin levels persisted for five hours. I mean, if you're eating a standard American diet, which has unfortunately spread all over the world now, if you're eating that, uh, you, your insulin never clears because you're eating snacks and you're you're just flooding the system with insulin all the time. And I I think that messes with whether or not you're doing house cleaning with autophagy, I don't think that's taking place properly. I don't think your your glucose really never clears as well as it should, even with all that insulin. you probably have some remnants floating around in the places that shouldn't be. Uh, there's no way to to test or know that for sure. I'm speculating I don't know. I'm not a doctor, remember I'm just a guy but but this whole this whole insulin response thing I think has been really it hasn't been emphasized enough. They are related, but they're not directly related. You can have an overwhelmingly high insulin response in an individual that persists for an extended period of time. And I think that makes it doubly hard for people that have that to lose weight, especially if you tell them they can have a balanced diet where they're throwing in carbs in excess of 100 grams or 150 grams a day and trying to lose weight. Because I think you just keep getting in the roller coaster of your blood sugar going up and your blood sugar going down, your blood sugar, it just, it's, it's, you never get rid of the cravings. And the, the big surprise was on some of the, some, a couple of the um, artificial sweeteners, you got as much of an insulin response with those as you would with regular sugar. So they're responding to it as though it is a, a, a sugar or a real sugar that you're getting a glucose response. That you have to take care of, but the insulin was rising just as as precipitously, so that that was a real shock to me too yeah this that's... whole uh, go
1: ahead oh, No, Sorry. on you go on you go the,
0: the, the, this whole thing I think that uh, beneath the torch is on with this this no sugar, no grains, I think is a a real good uh focus for that is that anything that even tastes sweet. I mean you're st- if you if, 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 even during a fast if you're if you're taking something artificial a taste sweet it it seems to ac- uh, really accelerate the production of insulin for no good reason you don't you don't need it it's not really it, it shouldn't be going on you should be giving the system a rest an occasional rest
1: yeah, and I tend to agree I think that it varies from individual to individual too and you sort of hinted at it that maybe you were using sweeteners when you first started as a way to kind of wean yourself off sweet things. And I think in that respect, it can be quite useful. I've spoken about that before on the podcast, how some people need a kind of bridge away from the diet that they've been eating for so long and that they're probably addicted to. And I agree that no sugar, no grains is a nice, um, baseline for people it's uh it's simple you know if you look at uh, the ingredients and the sugar then don't eat it similarly if there's you know refined wheat or uh, corn or whatever then you don't need to eat that um tucker goodrich who we've had on but i've not released the episode yet he um talks about low carb low six so you know uh that sort of encompasses no sugar, no grains or low sugar, or low, sugar low grains. But he emphasizes um, uh, omega-6 fats, particularly linoleic acid as um, a big problem and a driver of insulin, um, which is strange because it's not sweet, but it, um, it causes real issues seemingly metabolically and it drives hunger directly and um, drives weight gain. And some people think that nuts are really, nuts are really high in linoleic acid. And Some people think that one of the reasons that they're addictive and uh, stall weight loss and can cause weight gain is the, you know, say a walnut, I think is about 50% linoleic acid. So um, why, if that hypothesis is true, why- I you gotta
0: get off the nuts. I gotta get off the nuts, It's <laughs> it, That's it. Michael Eads has done some work on that too. I've seen a couple of his lectures on this whole seed oil problem um, driving uh, obesity. Um, it's fascinating.
1: Yes, and I think they probably, Michael Eads and uh, Tucker Goodrich, um, kind of were active in the in the in the uh, reading of hyperlipid, this blog by uh, um, a Scottish veterinary surgeon who started looking into fat metabolism and um he he eats, a, he eats a lot of fat himself and uh writes scientifically about it i remember tucker goodrich in the comments a few years ago saying you know yes carbs can be bad but look at this it's the seed oils and i think um tucker goodrich had, uh, had kind of it sparked off for him after reading something something that stefan guillenay had written um and uh, then experimented with his health and he actually had uh ibd of like 16 years or something like that um where he had to carry a roll of toilet paper around with him at all times and um and he'd been low carb for a while i think but uh, several days after um stopping consciously stopping seed oils eating seed oils he immediately resolved his uh, symptoms of 16 wow. years of wow. ibd just like that
0: that's amazing
1: yeah and um it's really interesting all, all the the uh, individual experiments that people are doing on their own bodies and how it's great and it's very empowering but in a way, hard to see stringent, uh, controlled experiments taking place, partly because there's not much of a financial incentive and partly because they would just be so difficult and impractical to do. Um, so it, it allows people to turn around and say, yeah, well, show me the, the, the studies. And right. You can't really, you know, in a lot of cases, you just have to piece the evidence together and say, you know, I think it's strong enough and I'm going to do it for myself. You do what you want. And
0: I, th- I think what's making it a little bit uh, more accessible to people is what's going on in combating type 2 diabetes. And I look at, uh, like, Verda Health, for example, the folks there, Finney and Bullock and uh, Sarah Hallberg. I, one of the first things I remember seeing was a presentation, a TED talk that Sarah Hallberg had done about. Uh, Looking at the dietary um, recommendations and medication in, in response to medication options for T2 uh, diabetes, and and how this was it creating kind of a strange circular argument because you had to take a certain amount of carbohydrates to adjust for the medication that you were being prescribed, and the the some of the things that that I think Verda is already showing and in, in their their uh, their cohort with a 55% I think it's a 55% uh, remission in these patients that they're treating that's that's pretty fascinating stuff and if more people catch on to that I think they can they can see that um, it has really an important impact on metabolic health in general that's the that's the saddest part for me is when I look at what I, what I personally went through and the struggles I went through and you always feel like, well, I'm just not active enough. Or gee, I, if I just wasn't, you know, if I didn't eat so much or why am I, you know, you feel like there's something wrong. Like I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be desiring these things or eating these things. Or if I just could turn it off, I'd be fine. Well, there's a metabolic problem here and it's really what you're eating. It's not how much you're eating. And it's, it, 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 it's so sad for me to see, the level of of really people that are unwell metabolically unwell that if they just understood this and made some small changes getting rid of seed oils getting rid of sugar getting rid of you know simple you know uh, the, simple changes getting rid of the carbs i mean tim professor noakes tim noakes done a great presentation on showing just the effectiveness of reducing carbohydrates down to 25 grams in people, how dramatic you can make a change in, in, uh, in their lives. And, and that's what, that's what has my attention with all of this. I mean, it, and I, especially with what's going on, some of these stats on, um, on, uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. I mean, who wants to, you live to your 85 years old, you have a 50% chance in the U S 50% chance of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's or, or dementia. It's related. I mean, there, this is all seems to be related.
1: Yeah. They're starting to call it type three diabetes and, um, yeah, for the Virta study is brilliant. And, uh, what uh, Dr. David Unwin is doing and on this side of the pond, with his patients and reversing, depending on whether you like that word or not, certainly um, bringing about half of his patients that are on low carb are completely off drugs and the rest of them have, have become healthier and reduced reduce the drugs that they're on. Um, I mean, I know that when you employ people, you feel, well, I feel that there's you've got some sort of duty of care. Do you try to improve the food environment in any way for your employees
0: we have and we've we've done some things over the years um, one thing uh, <laughs> I have to go back in time and look because at one time I had the 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 fellow that was advising me on how to be a vegan come here and talk to everybody and oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I wouldn't have done that now <laughs> but that was uh, over 20 uh, 25 years ago now so but uh, you know, proselytizing about this is always a problem. There's some. I, I find that if one one-on-one, if people ask me about how it's working, that's a lot better than just going up to somebody and saying, "I know you're struggling because I struggle too." That can be offensive, but um, we have done a lot. I mean, for example, you know, the health. We have a we have a gym in the in the building here that we've put some equipment in, and we encourage people to use that. Um, our healthcare uh, program that we have will help pay. If you want to use a gym outside, if you show that you are using it, it'll pay for some of the fees for that, for example. Um, but the big change would be if we, we could get people to start eating better. And we don't have a cafeteria anymore. We're not. We don't have that many people here, and it didn't work out anyway because people wouldn't eat what we were serving. So unfortunately a lot of people want to bring stuff in but um that is where i think everybody can make some impact personal impact i've just tried to live this way and it's been so surprising to me when i first discovered it i was so shocked that i couldn't stop talking about it because mm-hmm. i was so shocked and that the, the most profound change was just how much better i slept and and mental clarity and loss of cravings i mean those those are the three biggest things that happen right out of the shoot. And I thought, wow, this is, it's so dynamic a change. I'd never felt anything like that. I I mean, I must have been metabolically, you know, damaged for a long time. So uh, the one-on-one thing I think works the best if if you can help and point people in the right direction. Plus, I'm not a doctor. So everybody's got you know, some people are further along and they're being treated already. I'm not going to tell somebody that's diabetic to just do something, you know, they should talk to their doctor and try to figure something out. And hopefully the doctor's enlightened enough to know that there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. And if you change your diet around and get rid of them, you're probably better off.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's that saying, be the change you want to see in the world. And I think for Eating—that's uh, an important one, um, because, like you say, I mean, I, what you went through is pretty much what I went through. I was so shocked and stunned at the the turnaround in my health that I not only couldn't shut up about it and definitely uh, annoyed people. Um, I also changed career. So, you know, I started off when I left school working in high end restaurants, and then took a bit of a left turn and got a physics degree. So I was working in physics and engineering and then started a PhD in physics, but my health wasn't good. My weight, I wasn't happy with my weight and you know, it was fluctuating and my health was bad. And so the podcast episode that came out a couple of weeks ago with Ken strain explains all this, that um, he'd heal, healed his chronic fatigue syndrome. (ME). I got onto paleo low carb and I haven't looked back and uh you know i i uh, started a business that sells food that's compatible with that way of eating because i want people to have the you know the access to it um and i started the podcast to um provide the information so that people can make their own minds up because like you say people aren't going to come to me like they go to a doctor so um I think providing as much information as possible is the is the is the way to do it yeah
0: and the information is so plentiful now the books that are out there and some really great work has been done i mean you look at the work that gary taubes did nina techholz did uh bob lusting did uh, lustig did I, I that that's great that's really great work um ivor cummings does has done great work um jeff bollock and steve finney eric westman I mean, these guys, I, I, I look at them, and then you see somebody like Tim Noakes, who's trying to do something, who almost got shut down, down in South Africa, and the same with Gary Fetke. I mean, that that just is inexcusable, and I have really a lot of respect for people like that, and people like Sean Baker, who stepped out of practicing medicine while he did an experiment on himself, in essence, and then came back in, in into it. Um, those guys are really on the front lines, and I uh, there's kind of a worry that I have is there's this underlying current uh, among um, kind of the organized the organized resistance to this movement trying to deplatform these guys, and uh, you know they almost got away with it in South Africa, they almost got away with it in Australia. Um, it would really be really be bad because the truth is so plain and the truth is so clear that we're not eating right. And we haven't been eating right for about 40 years, 35, 40 years. And the fat got vilified, and it was the wrong thing to vilify, and carbohydrates got celebrated, and they were the wrong things to celebrate, and we're paying a price for it. And the stats are very clear about it. So the more people that understand that and read these things, and start piecing together how it works in their own life, I think can make a difference. They can really change their long-term health and the health of their loved ones just by making those changes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that, uh, beyond the personal that there's a um, political solution to health issues?
0: Well, the pro- it's kind of a funny problem because one of the reasons we're in the problem is because there were some people that were well-meaning. You go all the way back to the Eisenhower administration and it continued on through the McGovern Commission in the US uh, trying to get people to eat what they considered to be a healthy diet. And it was—it looks like it wasn't the right information. The food pyramid wasn't constructed correctly. And I, I remember reading some of the history on that. It was kind of funny, the earliest recommendations uh, for grains for getting grains was they wanted to people to eat eleven slices of bread a day I mean it just they didn't, they didn't, because that was where they wanted the the calories to come from and you know don 't eat don 't eat saturated fat and meats because it was going to be a problem and it 's turned out to be that's probably wasn 't the healthy way to go so the same thing can happen if the minute you it can be used either way i i it, I, I'm worried about, I am really worried about some of the things that are still going on in government. For example, this whole idea of meatless Mondays mm. that they rolled out in, I think it's in the state of New York or in New York City, uh, where they're taking meat off the the uh, cafeteria menus for students in schools, meatless Mondays. There seems to be a real political agenda on one side of this, and it's tied into um it's really, it's, they're trying to tie it into what's going on with the environment at the same time. And I from everything I'm starting to read, and I'm not an expert on this, I'm just starting to read people like Alan Savory and some of the things that are going on. I'm really impressed with some of the things I've learned about ranch lands and, uh, and uh, the whole um, meat industry, the cattle industry that I never knew before, that I never understood before in grass-fed Animals versus uh, animals that are fed in feedlots and things of that nature, and how beneficial that actually is to feed uh, animals in pastures, and how beneficial that can be for the environment. They're really running on solar power in a a, a way. Um, I'm worried that the agenda is going so far the other way to try to stop that or curb that or make it difficult for that. It's it's heading in the wrong place. So. There, there has to be a bulwark against that because it's, it's, it's really counterproductive to take that option away because it's going to make the health care crisis even worse than it is now. Meat is a very, very important part of, of what we are and how we work, and I'm sure there are people out there that will disagree. They have ethical concerns about it, and I, I understand that. But for what I've learned about the way I operate. And if I didn't have that as an option, I'd be very unhealthy.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I agree that politically the winds can change in either direction and, you you know, well-meaning people can, uh, and I think that's the kindest possible reading of it because there definitely are well-meaning people who over the years have implemented legislation that's obviously turned out to be damaging. Um, And, if you do that, then you know, if, if, if one side, uh, or you know, one set of voices, um, is loud enough to say, lift the ban on saturated fat, then is that necessary? You know, you might just end up with processed foods that have lots of saturated fat and lots of grains and lots of seed oils. You know, it's the, the law of unintended consequences really, um, comes into its own and, um, I'm I'm kind of politically quite quite mixed, I suppose, um, when it comes to the idea of, of legislating, um, because I, I can see that with the best will in the world, you can really mess things up. Exactly,
0: and you're right to say the law of unintended consequences, because that's exactly what we're suffering through. There were people that really believed in what they were doing when they did these things and, um, it just doesn't look like it was right. And we're suffering with it. We, we turned a couple generations into a lab, into a lab experiment and, uh,
1: the, it's
0: pretty clear what, what we got for it.
1: Yeah. Well, um, what do you think is the, the best hope in terms of, uh, health for, for people?
0: Well, I, I would think we have to do something in the medical community. I mean, that's why I see people like Eric Westman, for example. I'm so encouraged by him discovering what he did and him trying to do what he did. And the guys at Virta, for example, Finney and Volok, um, what they discovered and what they've come up with. If there's a way to get this back into the into doctor's hands and into doctor's heads, I think that would be absolutely key. Going to a Going to your doctor and and, and having them look at your A1C, and just waving it because you're right at the top of the norm. Uh, but you can tell by looking at the patient that there's some metabolic problems going on, and explaining to them that their diet isn't right. And it's pretty obvious from looking at them, looking at their weight, and talking to them, uh, and and looking at their blood. The doctor has to be in a position to say, I. I don't think you should be eating this way and here's what I think you should change. And if that's not going to happen, I don't, too many people rely on what the doctor tells them as being uh, uh, crucial when they leave, when they leave the office um, and making those changes. But I, and I don't have the impression that enough, enough of members of the medical community have come around to that. I think there's still, there's still a preponderance of, of uh, people that, um that believe in that diet heart hypothesis and and uh that have vilified saturated fat and that believe that um that the diet has to be balanced with adequate carbohydrates and until we get that thinking changed, I guess within the medical community it's, a, it's going to be an uphill battle because we rely so heavily on what we get for our, from our doctors' orders and, and uh, from our from doctors support and again i'm not I'm not a doctor and i've learned I've only learned this as anybody can learn it by reading alternative um, studies on it and and looking at at some of the numbers and looking at some of the other uh, uh, books and papers that have been written but i think that's the, that's the key where this has to change it, it it doesn't seem to be coming as fast as i'd like but just look at what has happened in the last two or three years it's dramatic i mean when i started when i started doing this it was a struggle for me to find out some of the things that were going on and now it seems to everybody, I, I talk to people, oh, yeah, I, I'm on a keto diet. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing keto. Oh, you do keto? I do keto. But th- in a way, that's dangerous, too, because people look at it as a diet. and It's not a change in the lifestyle. And it took, it took me a while to do that, too, because I started thinking, well, I'll do this for a while, and then I'll be back, and everything will be fine. No, the light bulb went on. There's, there's a problem here, if you go back to the other thing. There's a metabolic problem that happens again, and it's insulin. The more I provoke insulin, the more problems I'm going to have. So
1: that's the whole key. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and lending your voice to it because I think uh, besides the, the interesting um, stories around the, the history of your company, I think seeing someone who's clearly intelligent and um, you know, uh, capable come to that conclusion is important for people um, in making their own minds up.
0: Thank you. You're very nice to say it. Uh, it's the information's out there and I really encourage people to find out as much as they can about this because it'll change their lives.
1: And do you um, want to, you know, uh, tell people where they can find you? I don't know if you're interested in being followed on Twitter or anything or any, any other. Yes, I'm on resources. Twitter.
0: It's, uh, it's at Michael uh, underscore J underscore costs at Twitter. And uh, that'd be great. I, I, I like to send out a lot of uh, articles and pass on information on science. I'm interested in all things science, all things music, uh, writing. Um, there are a lot of things going on there that uh, all seem to be tied together and have to do with health and better living and things I like to pass on. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. Oh, yeah. I always like interacting with other people. That's how we met. So that's great.
1: Yeah, I think that I mean, I've been really enjoying doing the podcast. I think uh when you're when you're, you're when you're doing something that's maybe um considered an alternative community and you don't necessarily you know you've you've bored everyone that you know uh personally to tears with it. So you kind of you run out of people to talk to. <laughs> and uh it's really nice to be able to um have chats with uh, oh, interesting people like yourself. So uh, We're yeah. out
0: here. We're out here and we appreciate what you're doing and what other people are doing too, because the more people <laughs> that can find you and the more people that can listen to the people you have on your show, the better. I mean, I'm, I'm just in. I'm just a universe of one and it worked for me and I learned a lot. And the, the only thing I would really encourage people to do is read as much as they can about this. And they'll come to the, I think they'll come to the same conclusion. Um, and watch that great. I mean, Vinnie, Tatorich's movie or Tortorich, I, I think it's pronounced, I always get the pronunciation wrong, but his new movie, Fat, the documentary, which is the, no, I guess it's the number one documentary on iTunes right now. It's a great history of all this. It's a, it's a terrific movie. It's really, really good. Uh, if I would had that, you know, 10 years ago, maybe I, I'd have been gotten healthier sooner.
1: <laughs> yeah. I haven't watched it yet. I've only heard good things. So yeah, I would definitely recommend that for sure. You'll enjoy it. Well, Michael, thanks again for joining. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you very much, Ali.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and see you next time.